stage of my school uh, years or my educational years. In uh, uh, thankfully not a lot in primary school, but my, my mind is probably not able to go that far back at, at this age. But sec- certainly in secondary school, I, I, I had a maths teacher, and. Uh, she was really interesting. She was very slight and very short, so she's not an intimidating person in terms of her size, but in terms of her demeanor, she was incredibly intimidating. She was very much, she was a very good teacher in the sense that she had very good results with a top set. So she would earmark people uh, uh, very early on and put them in a particular box. And if you didn't fit the box, you just didn't fit the box. And no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't get out of the box. And I went into a particular box, and unfortunately, it wasn't a good box. And at every parents' evening, it was the same story. Um, and it was a real discrepancy between maths and all the rest of the other subjects. So all the other subjects were fine. Maths was just terrible. And my parents were really baffled about it. And she kept saying to them, He's just not working hard enough, which wasn't true. But it became so terrible that I began to lose sleep. This is age 13, sort of going on 14. I, I, I would not be able to sleep at night. I would be horrified of going to school in the days when mass was on. And I was almost paranoid, you know, that everything was going to go wrong. And the conversation were going on between parents and, and, and her, and just, we, were, we weren't reaching anywhere. And in the end, I had, just, I had to s- switch classes to go to a different teacher, and everything picked up. But sadly, the result of nearly three years of that damaged m- my, my whole experience of maths and later on science, that I really struggled afterwards because of that. Similar sort of thing, going into medical college... I was put in a particular group, and I was the only guy in a group of about 13, 14. And um, it it was really interesting reflecting on it right now. The the lady who led our course, I think she was a bit of a misandrist. She was basically a man-hater. And she absolutely made, made it her mission to punish me at every, or humiliate me, or embarrass me. Think of the Worst sort of misogynist statements that you can hear on social media or in the media. Flip that around and, you know, do, do it in, in that kind of context. And it was just really, really unpleasant in, in that. Um, and again, I, I couldn't do right. However hard I tried, I couldn't do right. And then you, you go to uh, training at Bible College University. And uh, we, we had a tutor in, uh, I, I think I can say now, I mean, uh, I think he's probably going to be with the Lord. <laughs> we had a tutor who was teaching particularly hermeneutics, which is how to interpret the Bible when you preach, which obviously would have been a subject that was very close to my heart. And he was teaching New Testament. But he had this bizarre thing in which there was a group of us. I mean, I wasn't the most diligent student, you know, in, in there. You know, I was a... 19, you know, this was between, you know, 19 and 24. You know, I wasn't particularly dedicated and studious and all the time in the library. So I was part of the crew that every afternoon were out at the back playing football. Because you can. I mean, it wasn't study time. Compulsory study time was later on. But he got it in his head that this group of people would just not deserve higher marks. And again, however hard we tried and studied and worked, 
you couldn't get out of a particular mark bracket for him. While there were other guys, for example, Pastor Michael, he would be top marks whatever he would do. Because he really liked him. He saw him as a very mature, very, which he is, very level-headed, you know, really impressive. And the rest of us, whatever we tried, we couldn't get out of that. And you would relate a little bit to either school. I could see quite a few of you kind of uh, nodding with approval or, or work environment. No matter how hard you try, you get criticized, you get attacked, and very often it's an unfair thing. Well, this is what is happening right now as we're journeying with Nehemiah. We, we've seen that there's been the, the work of rebuilding the broken walls of Jerusalem. And at the same time, there was a sense of real opposition to that. There was going, it's almost like parallel train tracks. The two were going hand in hand together. And we've had a lot of attack, but this time it becomes personal. So instead of just criticizing the Jewish people who are rebuilding, this time is very targeted, and it's aimed at Nehemiah. And this is very significant, and you will see this you know, in politics, you'd see this in church leadership, you would see this in leadership in any organizations. Sometimes a leader becomes a target, and that becomes a problem for the whole organization, or for the whole party, or for the whole nation, because leadership is so significant. And certainly this is what is happening right now. They have a mixture. They're nearing the completion of the, of, of, of the wall. So if you look in, in chapter 6, it says this. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though after that time, I've not set the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent me the message. So this is right almost at the end. It's almost like the building next door. You, you begin to see it. Ian and I had the privilege of going inside on Monday. This is great because you begin, you begin to see things taking shape and you can begin to dream about the future. So it's right near the end. The only thing that's missing is the doors. So it's all completed. Gaps closed. And that's a dangerous time because they would have been very tired and very excited. And it's a time when you can let your guard down. You know what I'm talking about. You're tired and excited. Guard down. So it's very significant. And right then, this personal attack, they had an external attack. They had an in, internal attack, problems inside with the people charging their, their, their fellow Jews. And he had to address it. There's been words before from these three guys against the nation, but this time it becomes personal to Nehemiah. And this is why I think there are some very useful and helpful lessons for us as Nehemiah responded to this and he faced these attacks. And the first thing that comes is an attract through an intrigue. So these three men send a message. When they, when they heard this, it simply says this right at the very beginning. They sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of honor. And Nehemiah says, this is probably his journal entry, but they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them to reply, I'm carrying on a great project and I'm not, I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down with you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. 
So this is the first one, is an intrigue. There's nothing in there in it to suggest that there's anything bad going on. It's almost like, Nehemiah, come get down, less of a meal, less of a coffee. But what's behind it? And in Nehemiah's mind, it could have been a very attractive and enticing offer. He was aware of the conflict. He was aware of the problems. He was aware of the opposition. And you know what it's like when you've been in a conflictual situation with somebody. And they suddenly send you a message and they say, let's get a meal together. Let's have coffee together. What's in your mind? Probably very likely you're thinking, maybe they saw the error of their ways. And they want to apologize. Maybe they want to reconcile. And there's nothing more enticing if you're in a conflictual situation than wanting to get closure on a situation that's bad and reconciliation, right? Nobody likes to live with tension. So this would have been very attractive to Nehemiah. He might have thought they want to reconcile, they want to apologize. Maybe, maybe, maybe God is doing a work. Maybe this is an opportunity from God. You remember the story of King David, who was on the run from Saul. Well, he wasn't king at that time. He was anointed to be king, but he wasn't king. And King Saul, who was the king in charge at the time, was chasing, trying to kill David. And David is in the cave together with his men. And Saul goes inside to relieve himself. And the men are almost giving him this false prophetic word saying, God's given him into your hand. Kill him now. And David is saying, there's no way I'm touching the Lord's anointed. That would have been so enticing for David. He could have said, that's it. Boys, no more running. No more caves. Back to the palace. Who wouldn't want that? But actually, David recognizing that's not God. And Nehemiah recognizing this isn't God. This is a scheme from the enemy. And he realized that they intended... at. Best case scenario, they were distracting him from the work. Worst case scenario, they were going to assassinate him. Either way, it's bad. But Nehemiah recognizes it. And you know what they do? Four times they keep coming with the same message. Men, how many times your wife has told you to do something? You know, and you hear it once, you know, and you think, oh. And you hear it twice, and you think, oh. And you're hearing it a third time, you think, oh. And you hear it the fourth time and you think, I better do it. I just better do it. Repetition has a way of trying to enforce a message and, and, and trying to get somebody to be broken down and say, oh, I might as well just do it. It's when your kid is asking for a certain Christmas present and you, you can't afford to get it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it just to shut them up. So four times they do that with this intrigue, but he doesn't respond. Because repetition tends to wear you out. That, that's the way torture worked with prisoners of war. When they were being made, or, 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 or those who were imprisoned in the communist time in Romania, they, they were made to say things they've never done just because of the rep, repetitive nature of pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And they just wanted relief. They wanted it to stop. So that didn't work, and then they moved to the next one. 
And it, it, it says, if you read in verse 5, Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which it was written, It is reported amongst the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to this report, you are about to become their king, and have, been even, uh, have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. And the second one is insinuation. And this is incredibly hurtful. This is a smear campaign. This is the equivalent of somebody going out on today's social media and blasting lies about Nehemiah. Normally a letter in those days would have been written on a piece of papyrus and would have been tied with a piece of leather. And would have been closed. But instead, they know what they're doing. They know what is happening. And Sambalat sends his servants with his open letter so everybody can hear this. Everybody can read this. So there's this dissemination of fake news, if you want, in which the lies about Nehemiah are being spread. And I love the way it's phrased. It is reported amongst the nations. People often come to us as pastors or leaders and they say, some people are saying. Some people are saying, who are these people? I I really don't like that. Some people are saying. There's quite a few of us. Really? How many? Oh, about five out of 250. Well, that's a majority. And that smear campaign has that flavor to it in which there seems to be all these people that are talking about Nehemiah wanting to do this takeover, this coup, this revolution with the Jewish people. And then they drop Geshem as a name because that's what you always do. You, you know, he, he's not saying, he's not saying himself you know, Sanballat is not saying, I believe this. He's saying, oh, Geshem believes this. And again, that's the same scenario in church. There's a few of us, or there's people talking about this, and then they name somebody else that isn't present, isn't part of the conversation. That's classic. There's a vagueness, and there's an accusation, a name that's being brought in, just to add weight probably. And there is this accusation of rebellion. Basically, you want to rebel against the king, and you want to take over and be the king of the province. Which would have been a very, very serious allegation. And tied to it, <laughs> it's, it, it says right at the very end, Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. Blackmail. Coming back to the same thing that they've asked the previous four times. Come and get together. If you don't do it, we'll tell. We'll tell the king. We'll let the king know. So that was meant to create an incredible sense of debilitating fear within Nehemiah. Just that threat. I'm going to expose something about you that isn't even true, but it's a very dangerous accusation. They could cost 
you your life. That doesn't work. And then comes the third one. And that's intimidation. Look at verse 10 onwards. One day Nehemiah says, I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabel. He was shut in his home and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the doors down because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but he had prophesied against me because of Tobiah and Sambalat, who had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. And then he prays and says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. And then the world was completed on the 25th of Elul. And then he says in verse 17, Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arach, and his son Jeholahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. But that's the next stage of the attack. There's an intimidation that comes. And this time there's an insider. There's a man who pretends to want the good of Nehemiah. And he says, I've got some intelligence. And I know of people who are trying to kill you. And I think you should go into the temple, close the doors. But Nehemiah sees through it. What was the point? It was meant to destroy Nehemiah's authority and credibility as a leader in the nation. The moment he would have stepped into the temple, he would have stepped out of his area of responsibility and he would have trespassed into something that was meant just for the priests and the Levites. And secondly, he would have looked like a coward. So he would have lost all the respect of the people. They would have never been able to trust him Because he would have been just interested in saving his life and he would have bailed out on them in difficult times. An insecure leader. And that's what they were trying to do to him through this man that was being paid to do this. And then there were all these snitches on the inside. All these people that were telling false good things to Nehemiah about his enemies. And they were carrying out information outside about Nehemiah. And some of them were prophets. Imagine living with such a challenge. But God was the one that revealed the deception. And he gave Nehemiah either the intel. Don't forget that he was the cupbearer of the king. So, you know, he, uh, he probably knew all about that kind of stuff. So I don't know whether it was a supernatural revelation or whether it was just him using the gifts that God had given him. But certainly it was really significant. But Nehemiah manages to ride this wave of attacks and come on the other side in a good way. Why? And here is where it's really important for us to to realize. Listen, criticism 
is likely to occur. Those type of attacks, not the same, not the same maybe variations, but the reality is for every single one of us, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in education, whether it's even in church, those kind of situations can arise. And sometimes they're just a result of human beings in conflict with one another, and other times there's a supernatural dimension through which Satan, the enemy, comes to bring disunity and disruption. So those kind of things are likely to occur. If you, if, you, if you want to avoid it, follow the advice of Aristotle. He says, criticism is something that we can avoid easily by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Good luck with that. How do we respond? Well, one way not to respond, you might recall that Churchill, in one occasion, uh, was having a heated conversation with Lady Astor. And at one point, she said to him, Winston, she says, if you would be my husband, I would pour poison into your coffee. At which, with his renowned wit, replied, Nancy, if I would be your husband, I would gladly drink it. I'm suggesting we probably avoid that kind of response. If you look at Nehemiah, what he did, he stayed focused. And the whole point of any enemy attack or any broken relationships is to bring distraction. Distraction from following God, distraction from serving God, distraction from growing in a relationship with God. That's Satan's strategy, and you see it all throughout. And we need to remain with a sense of focus. Colonel Goethals, who is uh, significant in terms of leading the building of the Panama Canal, was getting behind with the work. And he was incredibly criticized by everyone, the press, other leaders. And in one conversation with one of his friends, his friend said, why, why don't you just explain why the delays? Because they are justified. Why don't you engage with your critics? And he said, I will. He says, when? When it's finished. It's so important to stay focused. And Nehemiah realized this. And there's a couple of things that are really significant in the way he responded. The first one is keeping a good focus on our identity. When Nehemiah replies that the first time he was being asked to calm down, he sent them this message in verse 3. I sent messengers with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. He knew his identity. He knew the call of God on his life. He knew that God was the one that called him from exile to go all the way back and lead the rebuilding of the wall. He had a deep-seated conviction that God's will for his life was that. And God had a plan for his life. And there was going to be nothing and no one that was going to derail him and defocus him from that plan on his life. He knew who he was. He was a servant of God. And as far as he was concerned, no one could touch him. No one could stop the work because he was God's servant. God was his king and he needn't fear anyone else, nor the enemies, nor the other king. It's so significant to know our identity. And for us, in order to, so to speak, put a shield up on all those arrows of intimidation and attack that are coming our way. We need to know who we are in Christ. 
First of all, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. You need to let go of you trying to run your life, because he's never successful, and surrender to him and give ownership of your decisions, of your passions to him alone. And then you become a son of God. Then you become somebody who is saved. Then you become somebody who is called. And your identity is different. So in the context of that kind of an opposition at work or in an educational place, remember who you are in God. Remember that all these kind of things, they are hurtful, they are true, but they don't define you. There's a bigger picture that you're part of and a bigger plan that God has. And though you will go through difficult times, God will prevail in the end. Just like in Nehemiah's case. Remember your identity. They couldn't shift him. They could try all the different things. They couldn't because God was hit with him. God was building the walls and using Nehemiah and giving Nehemiah the discernment and the protection. Yes, it was difficult. I can imagine he probably had sleepless nights. It wasn't hunky-dory. It wasn't an easy life. He had loads of headaches, I'm sure. And he had to face those difficult situations. But he prevailed because God was with him. And he was God's servant. He knew what he was doing. I cannot come down. I'm doing a good work here. And the second thing is a focus on intimacy. When he responds, he responds by taking his frustration to God in prayer. That's intimacy. You can only, and I think that's, that's the level. If somebody was to ask me, how do I know I have an intimacy with God in prayer? And I would say, if you're able to pour out your heart like David did, with all the things that you cheesed off, even not suggesting that you, you do practice imprecatory prayers, you know, calling death and disease upon those who are giving you a hard time. But even to the point that you're just so, you're not embarrassed about God feeling really bad about what's going on. I mean, David didn't tart it up, didn't clean it up, didn't edit it, didn't say, oh, it's kind of a little bit unpleasant, Lord. In today's language, we're probably saying, they're doing my flipping head in. I can't cope with them. I want to kill them. It's that hard. It's that difficult. But he had such an intimacy with God, such a relationship with God, such a knowledge of God's fatherhood. And for us, such a closeness to the Spirit of God, who's our counselor and comforter, that we can speak to him and bring all that to him. And that becomes our place of edification and strength and perspective and vision when we just pour our heart to God in prayer and wait and receive from him. That was Nehemiah's secret. He knew that he had a God that was on his side. That's why he spoke to him. And that's why he got the strength. That's why prayer is so vital. And that's why prayer is so much undermined by Satan. Satan's quite happy with churches having Bible studies and sermons and uh, uh, loads of activities. But for some reason, so many churches all around the world, different flavors, We're all struggling with prayer because it's our weapon. And Satan just constantly tries 
that takes the sharpness away of that sword and just to make it blunt so he can get to us. But godly people will remember that intimacy is so important in this. Little aside as we finish, it's interesting how Nehemiah communicates. And I think when you're under attack, I'm learning from Jesus a lot. And there are times when Jesus is under attack and he uses different approaches. So it's not one approach. Very often, in terms of leadership, people tell you, oh, you need to answer every criticism, and you get somebody else, some other leadership guru that says, oh, don't bother answering any criticism. And you're like, okay, thank you very much. This is so helpful. But as I look at Jesus, I find a variety of answers. There are times when Jesus is being challenged or gossiped about or bad-mouthed, and he doesn't say anything. doesn't say anything. False accusation doesn't say anything. Other times... He challenges, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He goes for them. He really goes for them. And he responds to their criticism. There's not a right or a wrong. It's all about discernment. But one thing about Nehemiah that I really love, that I think there are principles for communication when we're getting criticized that are good to take away. Number one, it's honesty. So he's very factual. He doesn't go into a big, long spiel defending himself. He just says, what you said is wrong, full stop. Bang. Man's man this. <laughs> Just short, brief, truthful. Fact. Nothing else. When he responds, he responds with humility. He doesn't go at them going, who the heck do you think you are? You absolute horrible people. Leave me alone. No, he doesn't do that. He keeps humble. And the third one is brevity. Honesty, humility, brevity. Honesty, humility, brevity. I think it's really smart the way he deals with that. It's interesting that um, Sebastian Junger, who wrote the bestseller um, called Tribe, was asking the question, how does adversity shape a community? And he began to look in history, particularly at one episode in this nation's life, when the German planes were bombing London in 1939. And the British government at the time were really fearful that the society was going to be broken down because of it. And it would have a deep lasting impact on the British society. Civilians were not ready to face the trauma and the horrors to come. How could they cope with a complete change of life, the life they knew? How would they respond to that high threat every night of injury and death? Would they riot? Would they loot? Would they experience mass-scale psychotic breaks? Would they go on murderous rampages or lapse in total inertia as a result of the exposure to the German bombing? Some in the government at a time feared three times as many psychiatric casualties as physical ones. Known as the Blitz, the bombing campaign killed over 60,000 civilians. Wow. But to the surprise of the government, Junger writes, the expected breakdowns never materialized. In fact, it was the opposite. The Blitz achieved the opposite of what the attackers intended. The British people proved more resilient than anyone predicted. 
Morale remained high, and there didn't appear to be an increase in mental health problems. Some people with long-standing mental health issues actually found themselves feeling better. People in the British cities came together like never before to organize themselves at a community level. The sense of collective purpose this created led for many to experience much better mental health than they've ever had. One indicator of this is that children who remained with their parents fared better than those evacuated to the safety of the countryside. The stress of the aerial bombardment didn't override the benefits of staying in the communities in the city. We needn't be fearful of the attacks. If we keep that sense of focus on our identity and on intimacy with God, God can turn it around, just like the situation with the blitz that was mentioned here. And as a community, if, you're, if we're pulling ranks, if we're coming alongside one another, if we truly are the body of Christ intertwined with one another, bearing one another's burdens, we become an incredibly powerful force that God can use to continue to rebuild broken walls. The broken walls that God is calling me and you to be part of the rebuilding are the broken lives of those around us. So there's no need for fear. As the band comes up, I'm going to finish by reading you some words from Jesus, from John 15. Some words of encouragement to take to heart this morning. John 15, 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you, he's talking about his disciples, his followers, me and you. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs amongst them, then no one else could do. They would not be guilty, but as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This is to fulfill what is written in the scriptures. They hated me without a cause. And here is the encouragement. But I will send you, and me and you already have received it. I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father, and he will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me, because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. We are not alone. Jesus is with us. His spirit is with us. Let us stand together as we respond to him.